0: Okay, we're going to get started because I was told that you need to be out at the flagpole at 10 o'clock yep. for a special event. Okay, so somebody help me. I, I mean, we usually go until 10 after, so we have to start stop at 5 till. So I'll watch the clock, but you help me too, okay? Okay, uh, let's have a prayer together before we start. <clears throat> thank you, God, for this beautiful morning. Uh, thank you for all of the things that you have done for us in our lives up till now. Thank you that with Jesus there's always a bright future. And we ask that your spirit would teach us today and help us to understand uh, all that you want to do in us and through us uh, by the Holy Spirit. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I'm happy to talk about anything in chapter 3. If you have questions or topics, that you want to talk about, I'm happy to do that. Uh, You can start off, or if you just want to sit there and be boring, then (laughs) I'll start waxing on. But whatever you want to do is fine with me. Uh, Does anyone have any specific questions that they would like to ask on chapter 3? You can ask questions on the other two, too. I just overheard, I wasn't trying to, but I overheard somebody at this table say that the introduction was quite difficult. (laughs) Yes, it is. That's what everybody says but the rest of the book I wrote so that it wouldn't be that difficult I hope anybody all right well maybe questions will come up as we go along Uh, here's three things that out of chapter three that I want to talk about it's titled uh, returning to God as spirit and I want to talk a little bit about the persuasions of the Holy Spirit first, which I think is a much uh, underdeveloped theme in our current theology. Uh, Then I want to show you in the book of Acts how the feasts of ancient Israel were actually predictions of the work of Christ. And they're all coded and coordinated together so that we can fully understand what Jesus did for us and also how the Holy Spirit is part of this whole program. And then at the end of the class I want to talk a little bit about experience. Um, and that is from Colossians chapter 2 and 3. And we want to understand what, what does the New Testament really teach us normatively about experiencing life in the Holy Spirit. So let's turn to uh, the first passage that talks about the persuasions of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's on page 15. I uh, printed the text out for you there. And uh, it's in, ti- in italics. And we have our first reader. It is better for you if I go away, for if I do not go away, the one who will help you will not come. But if I do go away, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will persuade you the world of sin, righteousness and judgment of sin because they do not believe in me of righteousness because if I am going to the father, you will no longer see me of judgment because the prince of this world has been judged. Okay, some of you who read older versions will remember that uh, in the fourth sentence when I translate it persuade, what's the old way of saying this? Convict, Convict. yes. And uh, uh, it is a legal term. So those of you who are lawyers here, um, what would be the ideal court uh, case? Uh, either from a lawyer point of view or a judge point of view. When all the evidence is laid out and the person that's making the case, let's make it a prosecution case, is presenting the evidence as to how this person committed crimes X, Y, and Z, and here's the evidence for it. What would, from a judge's point of view, be the ideal conclusion in the mind of the perpetrator? or a lawyer. We do have two judges here, so that's why. One would be that he's driven by, by greed, by self-interest. That he would see this, or she would see this? Well, I don't know that they see it. That's what I want to know. In your mind, after the case is made, I mean, sentence is going to be made, the case has been made, but in your mind as a judge, what is it the ideal state of consciousness that you want this perpetrator to walk out of the court with. You you do want them to feel, that there should be a sense of remorse, sorrow. Um, What else? Uh, That they would understand that this is a fair, they got a fair trial. Mm-hmm. And, and that they really are guilty. Wouldn't that be the, the I- ideal? Instead of the person walking out and saying, well, they, they, they messed me over, they presented false evidence, they did this and that, and I really didn't do it, and now we're going to have an appeal. Every time somebody gets convicted, there's an immediately an appeal now. There's never any resolution. Because what it would happen if the perpetrator actually sat there, looked at the evidence, and said, you know what? I really did do this. I really am guilty and so therefore the law says XYZ so there it is I'm going to accept this wouldn't everyone be happy? yeah well who wouldn't be happy? the defense attorney attorney. yeah right 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 I forgot about those guys okay Um, well yes somebody wanted to say something Anybody? I'm sorry. So, I, the reason that I changed it from convict, I mean, there's, you can do that. There's different ways that you can translate words. But when you use the word convict, you'll often hear Christians talking about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicted me. Now, what is the first tone, tenor, feeling that you have when you walk around and talk about being convicted? Negative. It's, it is negative, And this isn't negative. This is illumination. This is reality. This is good. This is the Holy Spirit showing us who we really are with the intended result that we're not gonna, that his persuasions are so great and so clear and so lacking in negativity. They're just simply the way things are that the us, the perpetrators, eventually come to see what? Does he say, Jesus, what the Holy Spirit will persuade us of? Our sin. What, uh, uh, what about our sin? Uh, well, he doesn't say anything about forgiveness about here yet. This is something that everybody has to go through before they can be forgiven. Of Why, why does he persuade us of sin? What is the sin? aha, not all the little tiny petty things that we do as humans that are sinful, but the core radical issue is because they don't believe in Jesus. That's the central cardinal sin. So this passage isn't even talking about who? The believers. It's not talking about believers. So when believers go around all the time and talk about how the Holy Spirit convicted them and blah, 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 they're kind of twisting a passage that doesn't really even have any pertinence to them because this is for unbelievers. This isn't about particular sins. This is about the fact that you, as an unbeliever, have not yet embraced Christ as your Savior. And because you haven't embraced Christ as your Savior, then what? Well, it's got to be true. You're an unbeliever, and therefore what? Going to hell. Well, they don't, don't go to hell yet. Uh, <clears throat> You're, you're sinful. You need a Savior. Now, what's the difference between persuading somebody to accept Jesus as Savior because simply and only I am a sinner versus you need Jesus because He will make your life better, He will make your life abundant, all things will go well, you'll be happy, and what else? Uh, you go to heaven, all things will work out, you'll have a blessed life. Really? Now think about the what our appeal to not yet believers is today from the church. Um, we're trying to sell Jesus to them that if you accept him, you'll have a better life. The Holy Spirit tries to persuade them that you need to accept Jesus because why? Simple. Because... You don't have Christ in your life, and therefore you can't yet be forgiven. And then the second persuasion that the Holy Spirit tries to persuade us of is, number one, we're sinners because we don't believe in Jesus. Number two, what does he say? The Holy Spirit persuades people of something. <laughs> and what kind of righteousness? Righteousness. Righteousness with God and with with Jesus Yeah, Jesus' righteousness The Holy Spirit persuades the unbeliever You need another kind of righteousness Because all people, if you put the pressure on them Even people in courts of law, criminals and whatever If you put the pressure on them and accuse them What are they always going to do? What's human nature? What do we always do? We erect the big defenses. Oh, no, you don't understand. I actually was a good person in this situation because if you understood all the facts, you would see that I really was righteous. And we're always trying to... Good morning, come on in. And if you don't have a book, um, there's one right here for you. We're always doing this defensiveness. Now, this kind of righteousness, if you look carefully at it, Righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you no longer see me. He gives you the reason. So what is, what is he saying that the Holy Spirit does? We no longer have Jesus here in front of us to look at what true righteousness is. So we all use a relative scale of righteousness predicated upon what we see in society. And we look at one another and we say, well, I'm not quite as good as Judge Haas, but after all, He's a sterling, stellar, upstanding citizen. But I'm also not quite as bad as... I won't mention anybody. And that's what we do. We're always looking at other humans and saying, "Ah, I wish I was like that, but at least I'm not like that. Now, what the Holy Spirit does is erase all that and says, I just want you to think about one thing. Look at yourself in respect to Jesus' righteousness. And the Holy Spirit persuades people that they need His righteousness, not our righteousness. That your righteousness and my righteousness is insufficient and inadequate. And that takes some persuasion. People have to be persuaded of it. And some of us are real knuckleheads and we really fight with the Holy Spirit all the way along. And some people seem to Accepted earlier. Yes, I really do need Jesus because, number one, I'm a sinner and I, and I don't believe in Jesus. And number two, I need his righteousness because I don't have adequate righteousness. And number three, what's the third thing that Jesus said the Holy Spirit would persuade people of? Judgment. Judgment. Because... Uh, I can see why you said that, but we want to look a little caref- more carefully at the t- at the text. Who does he say got judged? Satan, Satan, the prince of this world. Satan is the one that got judged. When did he get judged? When Christ died on the cross. Colossians chapter two tells us that the cross itself was God's open display of how God dealt with sin, and He took. Satan's power away from him Because the only power that Satan has over human beings Is the fact that we don't believe in Jesus And that we aren't righteous So when Christ took that away from Satan He rendered a judgment on Satan as well And why is that interesting for human beings to know? Why do we need to know this? Why does the Holy Spirit need to persuade humans? Do you know that the one who runs this world, Satan Has already been judged? Why do we need to know that? That's one, I mean, it's comforting for the believer to know that, yes, God's gonna bring about justice completely, but number two, what are the people of the world purportedly doing according to the New Testament? Who are they following? They, they are following Satan. So if they're gonna follow Satan, and Satan's already been judged, the penny eventually is gonna drop that what? If I keep living this way, saying no to Jesus, and embracing myself in my own righteousness, what's going to eventually happen to me? I'm going to be judged along with Satan. Now, the Holy Spirit persuades and persuades and persuades and persuades until that magical, mystical moment happens and that the person who's being persuaded says what? I accept, I accept. Oh, okay, you mean you mean Jesus died for my sin, so if I believe in him, he takes my sin away. Yes, do you mean if I accept Jesus, I get Jesus' righteousness in place of my Uh, human righteousness yes do you mean if I accept Jesus then I won't get judged along with Satan yes and so eventually that's what causes somebody to cross over into faith in Jesus the Holy Spirit is the one that does this now I'll stop here and some of you are looking at me like I'm a cult leader so I want to understand why What, what what do you think about this This is something the Holy Spirit does to every human being all the time, all over the world, constantly. It's always happening. The Holy Spirit's infinite. He knows every one of us. And he knows exactly how to punch the buttons inside of our hearts to get us to respond to these three things. Not that we absolutely always will, but he knows how to make us think about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Does anybody have any comments you want to talk about this? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, This is one of these things that the Jews like to do, the Hebrews, and Jesus was one. Uh, They like to use what is called the prophetic aorist tense. In other words, they like to talk about future events as if they're already done because they're so convinced they're going to happen because God's given them a prophetic revelation that they use a future, uh, they talk about a future event as if it's already done. So when he says, Yes, the prince of this world has been judged. This is actually before Jesus died on the cross. But Jesus knows that this is going to happen, and he knows what's going to happen when he dies. And so in his mind, this is a fait accompli. It's already, gonna, it's already done, because God said it was going to happen. So then he acts on it or speaks about it as if it's already done. So, yes, Satan got judged at the cross, but then there will be, yes, a final evaluation. Yep. Yes, you're sealed. Is that not a judgment at that point in time and what judgments? Yeah, you can look at it that way. The works you know, again, I the works versus, you know, the belief and being sealed with your belief I haven't booked audience of how judgment thereafter could change that ceiling. Okay. Well, there's stage one, and who can give me a nice definition of justification? And don't break my heart, because this is a Reformed church. <laughs> I'm going to break my heart. <laughs> it is when God takes the righteousness of Christ... In other words, Jesus holiness. Jesus righteousness. And imputes it to you by declaration. And says, I now declare you to be righteous because you believed in Jesus. We know that we're not truly righteous. But this is a forensic, legal declaration. This is no different than if a judge sat in a court of law and said... Uh, okay, I'm going to pay your fine. Your fine is $1,000. I will personally pay your fine. And I am now going to declare you free from the guilt of this because I paid for it. You're free to go. Uh, have you ever done that? Uh, thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> Not very long. <laughs> um, this is what God has done for us in Christ. So you are still... Stamped with a standing therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because we're justified by faith in him not by what we do this is very hard for many people to accept because we've talked about this before our whole society is built on the premise that you're rewarded or not based on what you do Now, you come to the Christian faith, and God says, Well, I'm sorry to inform you, there's no way that you can ever become righteous in my eyes by what you do. There's no way. You can't make it. So, here's what I'm going to do for you I will give you as a gift the righteousness of Christ. When you place true, heartfelt faith in Jesus, when you trust in Him and what He did for you on the cross, you are declared righteous. Okay, so that's what you're talking about. That happens when you really believe. Then starts the whole process of, you know, living life, which is really theologically over in this realm, sanctification. And this, who, who can tell me what sanctification is? The ongoing process of perpetually giving yourself to Christ, the ongoing process of perpetually giving yourself to Christ and, keep going, like you become more and more and more like Jesus. Yes. Now, is it not true? Is this the way your life looked after you became a Christian? Mm-hmm. Or did it look like this? <laughs> you went on a retreat, <laughs> you came home. <laughs> now, All the time this is going on. You're still justified. Because why are you justified? By faith. So these down periods when you're not walking in the spirit, when you're doing your own thing, when I'm doing my own thing, it's a terrible thing, I guess, in the sense that we're not fulfilling God's will. But it would be the hugest mistake in the world that we could make is if we'd go from here back here and say, well, then I must not be justified. Because once you do that, you now have turned the Christian faith into your own device and you're saying what? My justification, my standing with God, my rightness with God is predicated upon what? Me. (laughs) That's that's the opposite of what the gospel really says. It's not based on you. It's based on what Christ did for you. So, these... Uh, Judge, I'll give you the passage. You can look it up. It's 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. I think, Brian, look it up for me real quick. It might be 5 through 10. But this passage talks about the idea that this is wood, hay, and stubble. And these, when we say yes to Christ, these are precious stones and jewels and diamonds. And that's what we produce in our life as we live. Some wood, hay, and stubble. Some diamonds, precious stones. and What is it, 10 through 15? Yeah. Yeah. So read that. And you'll see that what God does then is if you're a Christian, all the trash in your life at the final, it's not a judgment, it's an evaluation. We show, for a Christian, you will stand before the, the evaluative seat of Jesus. He will uh, praise your life. And what's going to happen to all this trash? it just gets erased because why? let's do it this way why? because it was already nailed to the cross Jesus already died for it so you get rewarded for the times that you say yes and you just don't get a reward for the times that you said no now this is all for the believers What happens to a person if they say, you know what, I'm going to just go into the judgment of God based on my own righteousness. I really don't need uh, the righteousness of Jesus. The Holy Spirit has been persuading me. They may not know this, but whatever, you know, they might say to a Christian, whatever persuasions that you're trying to put on me about how I need Jesus, I don't believe I need Jesus. I'm happy to stand before God in my own righteousness. why you were a decent person you didn't go out and rape and pillage the only way is through Jesus. yeah I mean this is the only righteousness that God will accept it's been provided for you and me it's the only righteousness that's compatible with God's nature what we produce is not so that's a very nice thing of God to do for us right to say, I, you cannot make it; you will not make it on your own. Therefore, I will make it for you. I will justify you by faith in Jesus. Meanwhile, the Holy Spirit does what constantly to the to the uh, not yet believer. What's the Holy Spirit constantly doing? Persuade. persuade, 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 persuade. Here's a piece of evidence. thinking, look at this part of your life. Look at this. Wow! They just the Holy Spirit keeps showing you pictures and portraits and facts and details about your life so that eventually like a perpetrator in a court of law you eventually come to the conclusion what yeah I I really need Jesus I'm not accepting Jesus because I think I'm going to get a happier life I'm accepting Jesus because I need him now it may be true for you and me that we will have a happier life with Jesus, and I'm, I think, generally speaking, you will, unless you're like Jeremiah or Paul, <laughs> or Jesus for that matter, sleeping in a ditch someplace at night, never having any money, jumping from house to house, and then you get wind up nailed to a tree. I mean, I don't. If you sent that lifestyle out to a a group of Americans. How would you like to have God's abundant life? You get to sleep in a ditch, sleep at other people's homes, never have enough money or clothing, and then eventually they massacre you on a cross. So it's kind of contradictory that if you're going to tell people to believe in Jesus, that the one that you're telling them to believe in had, definitionally, a horrible life based on what we would say, and then you tell people. But if you follow him, it won't be that way for you. You'll be really <laughs> happy. You'll have, You'll have abundance. Unless you live in the Soviet Union or China or some <laughs> other place that where they persecute Christians. Now this this modern thing that we're doing is moving away from uh, what the Holy Spirit really do does. We, per, we get persuaded to accept Jesus because we need him, not because of of the benefits that are going to happen, other than benefits spiritually of being right with God. Okay, so that's really foundational. I, uh, when I say returning to God the Spirit, I'm hoping that Christians are going to get into this. And if you really believe this, if you as a Christian really believed that the Holy Spirit was constantly doing this for people, persuading them, not making them feel n- negative or... Um, Bad, but just showing them how they need Jesus, if you knew that was going on among your not yet Christian friends, what would change about the way that you interact with them? What would happen? Broken hearted over them. Yes, you would, but what would change about the way you approach them and talk with them if you believed? and counted on the fact that the Holy Spirit was already persuading them. It would be easier if you had that understanding because you weren't the one who was laying the foundation. The Holy Spirit's already laid the foundation for you to, to start the work. Um, so yeah. Keep going. <laughs> uh, so it just, you're not working by yourself. The Holy Spirit's, it's he's already initiated it. He's already started what you need to go through with. Is it our job to persuade people to accept Jesus? No. Not really. I don't know why we ever took that job. <laughs> but what I, what I do, and I, when I listen to people that are not yet Christians, I listen for those three areas. I listen for what they say about um, how they feel about their state of righteousness. I, I listen for whatever they tell me about... Uh, if, their fear of judgment. I listen to what they tell me about sin and their their deficits, their failings, and I let them bring those topics up. And the reason they bring them up is because why? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has already been working on them. I just listen, and so when they whatever they talk about, I I say, well, you know. Uh, Yeah, I understand. I've failed a lot in my life, too. But one thing that really helped me was when I realized that I'll never be righteous on my own power and that Christ gives it to me as a gift. That's how I talk to to not yet believers. I'm presupposing that they're already being persuaded of that. Yes, sir? There's... Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, okay. Thanks for clarifying it. Because I don't, I don't do that. I don't judge people that they're not Christians. I wait inf- until they tell me. I mean, we're talking about like when, when I'm in an evangelistic context, when I'm with people who then start talking about God and it's very clear by what they're saying that they don't yet believe in Jesus. I'm not talking about interactions with my fellow Christians over here on the realm of sanctification, because we could find you know you, you're judge Haas you 're talking about where where do you want to put yourself on this scale by the way <laughs> right, here 's Judge Haas so you 've made this much progress in christ well it 's not my job to to judge you on that either uh, what, my job or uh, the body of the body of christ's job is to do what to encourage one another so that we go forward into Christ. But, you know, I'm talking about those times when you can clearly, when you're talking to somebody and it's clear, they, they don't believe yet in Jesus. Or a lot of times I get involved with people uh, that are not yet Christians on the golf course. And when they find out, what do you do? Which I always have to ponder. What is it that I do? <laughs> I wind up telling them, well, I'm, a, I'm an educator. I'm a Bible teacher. I, mean, I even had people say, you mean you're a preacher? And I say, well, if I can amend it and reinterpret that word, yeah, I'll sign off on that. Yeah. It, it freaks people out. That unnerves them. So I've learned that I can't, uh, what I have to do is listen to them not power my stuff into them and eventually if they, th- if they say you know this guy it's too bad he's a preacher because he's kind of nice and <laughs> eventually they start liking me and they'll talk to me they will eventually talk they will say well you know they'll bring up one of the things that they'll always do is they'll always bring up the thorniest problem well how come you know how come this church is filled with hypocrites And I say, well, I'm glad you pointed that out because I've been a hypocrite many times in my life. You know why? Because I'm a human. I'm a sinful person. And when I do something wrong, I don't necessarily want to talk about it. So I try to cover it up. But what I've learned is that I don't need to do that because why? because Christ gives me the gift of righteousness and then through the Holy Spirit we can grow into Christ thats I don't say that my way is the right way, I'm just trying to tell you what I try to do, make this very practical um, this is a huge important thing, uh, we'll go to her, her and then we'll go, to, I'm sorry, him and then you sorry okay, so it's a decade ago and I'm a hospital chaplain and I'm dealing with families who have <laughs> a loved one in critical care Yes. Well, it would, have been, it would be better if you'd go and sit with them and prayerfully count on the Holy Spirit to bring up the conversation that's springing up out of the person's heart because most people that are in de- death situations, they kind of know they're dying and they will talk about it if you let them. No, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. No, I think that the formulaic thing is flowed out of our abandoning, understanding the work of the Holy Spirit because if we would have understood that, listen, first of all, God loves these people infinitely more than ever we ever will. And number two, that many times, like when I do evangelism, I'm sad to say that it's... It, it's like, I don't really love that person. I don't know them. It's, I don't want to say it's a job, but it's a role. It's a function. I know I'm supposed to do this. I know I'm supposed to care about them. But I look at it, and I think, who cares about them more, God or me? It's ridiculous. So why should I use all these techniques to jam and force and compel them to do something when God is already doing that, and I just have to count on that and talk to them based on where they're at? Now, yes. Um, It's just a new thought for me that every person in the whole world already has the Holy Spirit within them. Uh, Not necessarily within them, but working with them, working with them, working on them, working in and through them, but not permanently living in them. Like a devout Muslim that wants to kill me because I'm a Christian. Is being persuaded of sin, righteousness, and judgment by the Holy Spirit. Yes. That's, yeah, it is a new thought for many people. We just don't talk about this anymore. I think you had a question, and you don't have to be the last one because we have to go. Going back to working out our sanctification, Mm -hmm. the concept of working out. In in our natural lives, we confuse it then with acts. The working out is working out the relationship with the Holy Spirit. That's the working out. Yes. And... There are certain, uh, I guess, externals that will tend to show up. Like the first chapter in my book is what? What's the one thing that you can or should count on that should be present in the Christian community? What was the one thing that Jesus said? Agape love. And that's poured into us when we become Christians. So, I mean, you, you should see some love in a Christian's life. It might not be perfect love yet, but you should see that. But what we've unfortunately done is, is we have a tendency to codify things. Well, if you're really a Christian, then you'll do this and this and this and this and this and you will not do this and this. And, this. and so we use this again as a formula rather than a supernatural transformation that God wants to do in us. Love being number one. Okay, I'm sorry, but you have to go. If you're going to the flagpole, (laughs) you have to fly out there. I think they're singing out there, right? Yes. So I'm sorry we had a shorter class today, but you'll enjoy this, and God bless you. Have a great week.